0: Today's sermon text is Genesis 14. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariak, king of Elisar, Kedeleomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kedeleber, but in the thirteenth year, they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedileomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephraim in ashteroth Karnaim, and the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shavai-Kirithaim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, Went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Kedalaamur, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goam, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariak, king of Elaser, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled till the whole country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. and the women, and the people. After his return from the defeat of Kedileomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Abram, or blessed be Abram, by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share.
1: Thank you. Yeah, right, right. We're looking for readers. Anybody? (laughs) Anybody? Please, please. I may or may not have sworn in our preaching cohort when I read that the first time. That word SIDM is very, very tricky, let me tell you. Thank you, Sherry. That was fantastic. Um, Good morning. So glad you're here. Um, So, something you should know about me is I used to love math. Um, I know that's a bit weird, Uh, but grade 11 and 12 were fantastic math years for me. Um, For whatever reason, I understood it really well Um, to the point where I gained some very bad habits along the way in that I didn't study and I did well. Uh, I didn't ever do my homework unless it was going to be marked. And I still did really well on tests. Like really well being that I got got the top provincial mark in BC um, for grade 12, which was pretty pretty fantastic, right? Right, okay, so, but um, that was like the grace of God on me because then I went to UBC and took calculus. (laughs) Um, And I got 3% on my first midterm. Mostly because I was really lazy, because I had learned some bad habits with how to do homework and how to study and make sure that you understand something deeply. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on which side of the ledger you sit on, today's text is a bit like calculus, in that... um, it is going to require a lot of understanding around this particular character, Melchizedek, and what it points to moving forward. So, buckle up, there's going to be a bit of scripture, and hopefully at the end you're not scratching your head, uh, but there won't be a test, so if you get 3%, that'll be fine. (laughs) Uh, I've I've titled the sermon, uh, A Tale of Three Kings. Now, uh, that probably will be like, wait, he isn't good at math. I don't believe his story. I saw five kings versus four kings plus another king. That makes ten kings, Uh, but there's only three? And I'm going to say, no, 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 there's five kings, and there's four kings, and then there's one king, and then there's a king of kings, which this all points to. So there's actually 11 kings. Okay. (laughs) Right? I said it would be difficult. Just getting you warmed up. There's three kings, though, that I think we need to focus on. The first two being the king of Sodom and the the king of Salem or Melchizedek. So let's let's look at the king of Sodom first. Uh, In Genesis chapter 14, verse 17, and then I'm going to skip verse 18 through 20 and just continue with 21 to 24. It reads like this. After his return from the defeat of Kedalamar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And the king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich." I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten, and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. Now, if you notice, that that really fits well together. It's as if this whole story of these four kings who have kind of ruled over this part of the land for 12 years, finally these other five kings are like, we're tired of this, and they raise up in rebellion, and these four kings come back and crush them and and chase them off into the hills. People are falling into pits and running for their lives. So sound was the defeat. And yet these four kings then go and kind of ransack the cities and take Lot and all of the possessions that are there and start running north. And Abraham hears about this and, and gathers his men and, and his allies and, and tries to head them off. And it says that he went, may, met them at Dan, which is at about a 140-mile journey before they catch them. And at night, he splits up his forces and routs Kedalamar and chases him yet another hundred miles before he's gathered all of the possessions and rescued Lot and all of the people from Sodom and Gomorrah. And then slowly makes his 240-mile journey back home. And there, and there he meets this, this king, Sodom, this, the, the king of Sodom, this king who ran into the hills in defeat with his tail between his legs. And the king says, okay, give me the people. You can have the stuff. We might think, oh, that's, that's, a bit, that's a bit strange, but that's actually customary to the time. If your possessions were taken by somebody and somebody redeemed them, went and got them for you, they were able to keep all of the money, all of the, the, the silver and gold and that, but they would have to return the people. So, so the king of Sodom is simply saying, okay, good, good, good on you. You did your job, you were a good military might Now you can keep what 's yours, and I will take what 's mine and will leave it at that see the 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 King, of so- the King of Sodom is simply seeing a natural worldview. there was no supernatural. Involvement, there was no act of God. It was simply this man Abram was stronger than Kedalamar and therefore he deserves the spoils. On the other hand, we have this king of Salem who we hear nothing about until this spot here in verse 18 through 20. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. You see, Melchizedek sees what has just happened as being God's doing. Yes, Abraham took his men. Yes, Abraham moved those 140 miles. Yes, he came up with a plan and he routed the king and he chased them and brought everything back. But Melchizedek sees it as God's work. As that God was in it and worked through it. That it was God empowering Abraham and giving him wisdom to do what he needed to do and gave him the capacity to make this happen and bring it back. And so he blesses God... Because of Abraham's work. Is this not the dichotomy we see in our world today? And that our our cultural message says all that is is what you can see, taste, touch. If you can apply the scientific method to it, and you can test it and verify it, then it's true, and it's good, and will operate in that zone. But if you're going to claim any kind of spiritual reality, spiritual involvement, God influence that is thrown outside of the world of possibility. The consistent message in Scripture, though, is that God is in and through everything. Genesis 1 talks about his creative hand and how he brought everything into existence. And then, when the people that he created rebelled against him, he brought judgment upon them in the flood. And restarted a people with Noah. And when they rebelled, he gave them different languages in Babel in in Genesis chapter 11. He took a person called Abraham and, and established a covenant with him. He brought a people around. He defeated the Egyptians. He brought the people of Israel and made them a nation in Israel. And when they disobeyed, God brought the Babylonians and the Assyrians to take them into exile. The entire scripture is God working through human Experience to bring about his purposes. Melchizedek sees that. Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king who took the Israelites into exile, sees that. See, there was a point where Nebuchadnezzar stood on top, of, on top of his palace and looked out over everything he said and said, there is no one greater in all of the world than I am. And God said, really? I'm going to make you eat the grass. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar writes after he's had a run-in with God. In Daniel chapter 4, 34 and 35, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him what have you done? Melchizedek, the king of Salem understood that And so when he saw Abraham come back in victory, he saw God's hand of blessing upon Abraham, not Abraham's strength and wisdom and military prowess. David Platt used to be the president of the International Missions Board and uh, in 2016 he gave an address in where he, he, he kind of brought some, some reports from what they've been doing in some sensitive areas and, and one of the missionaries was in Southeastern uh, Asia. And they were, they were reaching out to an unreached people group that they had to learn the language and, and figure out the customs and the culture. And so as they had been doing that hard work, they started to share Jesus with them. And slowly but surely, people started to give up their idols and bring them to these missionaries so that they could then follow Jesus instead of these idols. And they were praising God for it. And, and, and one day, all of a sudden, one person came back and said, I, I'd like my idol back. Oh, that's that's a bit strange okay and then another and another and and soon the whole village had come wanting their idols back and what they discovered was that their leader had died and every person in the village thought oh no this the spirits are angry at us for giving them up for this Jesus and so and so the the missionaries didn't didn't know what to do. They said, "Okay, well, can, can we can we see this leader? Can we go and pray at this leader's home?" And so they walked into this dead leader's home with him lying on the bed, and they just started to pray. They didn't they didn't know what to pray, so they just said, "Lord, Like, have mercy on these people. We don't know what they need. We don't know what they need to open their eyes so that they see you as good and behind all things and that these spirits are dead. But God, would you please do it? And in that moment, their leader coughed. And the room went silent. And then he coughed again. And chaos broke loose. Oh my! Oh my goodness! He's he's still alive, or or he's alive, and then they, they resuscitated him, and, and there he was, perfectly new. People gave their lives to Jesus, thinking this 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 Jesus is more powerful than our gods. How, however, David Platt, in 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 kind of summarizing this whole thing, made this comment. He said, I do know that at villages like this, they know how to recognize death. Yet, even if he wasn't dead, God sure chose an opportune moment for that guy to cough. (laughs) Do you see David's disposition here, David Platt's disposition here? is one that whether or not that man was sleeping or he was actually dead, God was in it. That God worked through those missionaries and brought people to himself because he uses situations like that to advance the gospel. And the question isn't whether that man was dead or alive, but whether God is moving And you see, in our story, the the king of Sodom sees the world as if it is just one plus one equals two, and what you see is what you get, and so you kind of just divide the spoils. And the king of Salem sees the world as being ruled by a God who is in everything, who orchestrates all things. who deserves glory and blessing. And this king of Salem is a really interesting man. His name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness in Hebrew. And Salem means peace. So he is king of righteousness, the king of peace. And he is both a priest of God Most High and a king of Salem. And this would have caused a lot of angst for the Jewish people of the day as they read this. To us, we're just like, okay, that's fine, that's good, move on, I, you know, whatever. Let's just continue on with Abram's story. We know what's coming. He's going to sacrifice Isaac or try to and all that. But as an as ancient Jew, when you would have read this, you would have been like, I, I'm sorry, I don't, this doesn't make sense to me. I have questions here. One of the things that the law, Deuteronomy chapter 17, asks for new kings to do is to rewrite or write out the whole books of the law. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So they would commission the rewriting of the Pentateuch. And it was for the sole purpose for their study, so that as they led the people, they could daily read the law of God and understand what was required of them and then lead accordingly. And King David did this. He was a man after God's own heart. And he had this scroll written and he was going through it. And he came to this passage and he had some questions. Namely, he would have said, well, how is it that Melchizedek can be king and priest? That doesn't make sense. Because I read... In Leviticus, that priests can only be of the line of Aaron from the tribe of Levi. And there's this whole section dedicated to who and what and how you could be a priest. And I know that you can't be a king unless you're from the line of Judah because that's where I'm from and kings are only going to come from my line because that was the promise of God to me. So how is it that a... A man from Judah could also be a Levite. That doesn't make sense. How is it that you could be a priest representing the people to God and be a king ruling for God over the people? Second, though, he would have asked, how can Melchizedek be greater than Abram? Now, to us, it might not be so evident. But it's very clear that the, the, the writer is looking to establish a, a hierarchy. Lamar is the big, bad king. And he crushes the other kings. The king of Sodom is at the bottom of the pile. And then you have Lamar. And then Kedilemar gets destroyed by Abram. And Abram comes back and gets blessed by Melchizedek. Now, you don't get blessed by someone who's lower than you. Nobody gives you a blessing if they're under you. You receive a blessing from somebody who is in authority over you, who has more power than you, who represents God better than you. So David would have asked the question, how is it possible that this priest-king, who we've never heard about, is greater than our father Abraham. This does not make any sense. And then he would have asked, where did this guy come from? I mean, in, in a book where if you would just go back and use Genesis chapter one and then you got Genesis chapter two, where you got Adam and Eve and they 're there, and then you got their three kids, and then from there on it says it says, This person was born, and then he begat so and so and he lived so and so many years, and then he died, and then this person was born and he begat this person and this person, and he lived so and so many many years, and he died, and then this person was born and he begat so and so many people, and then he lived this many years and he died. And Melchizedek just comes out of nowhere. Just, oh, here's a guy who's greater than Abraham, who's conflating what I understand as what should be happening in the world with priest and king. What am I supposed to do with this? Tracking with me so far? Okay, good, good. I'm barely there, okay. So, David in reflecting about this um, he writes Psalm 110 when he's thinking about this man Melchizedek and this priest king so he writes Psalm 110 which is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament and he writes this the Lord God Says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Under the, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, David starts to see this picture of, these, of this priesthood, this Levitical priesthood coming to an end, that something better was coming that a king of righteousness, that a king of peace, someone better was coming. Someone better than this character Melchizedek was going to come and bring these two together. And when, and when Jesus shows up on the scene, it's not a surprise that in Mark uh, chapter 12, Matthew chapter 22, and Luke chapter 20, he uses verse 1 to confuse the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees thought that the Messiah was going to come by a Davidic heir. That somewhere in the line of David, a king would come. And Jesus' question is, how is it possible that the Messiah would come from David's heir if David calls him Lord? Because when David writes this psalm, he says, The Lord, God, said to my Lord, somebody, sit at my right hand. Jesus is saying, Look, culturally, you would never call your son Lord. Jesus is talking, or David is talking about someone that is greater than him, it's not simply his son. It's not simply somebody in his line. It is something greater than just lineage. And Jesus spends his life showing how it is that he fulfills not only that lineage, but also the greater portion of that. I am, he says, equating himself with God. His miracles show his his dominion over the things of this world his sinlessness shows his holiness like god is holy his death and burial show his submission to god under any circumstance and his resurrection puts an exclamation point on the fulfillment of this passage. Jesus in his life says, I am that Lord. I am that King of righteousness. And then he is ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 20, Philippians chapter 2. And one day we'll come to judge in righteousness and truth. And we we read Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 through 16, and we should be afraid. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You see, this, this Jesus who is personified in the person of Melchizedek and seen by the king David and manifests in a life here, sits on a throne ready to judge in righteousness because he has been given all authority over everything. And, and, And we should sit quaking in our boots because if he is going to rightly judge i sit against him i sit on the wrong side of that because i know the thoughts of my mind and the dwellings of my heart and i know that my my own life would 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 not Even come close to meeting the measure of holiness that we are called to by God. And I know that no animal sacrifice will do it. But He is not just king, He is also priest. See, Christ doesn't just fulfill in Melchizedek what is his kingship, his righteousness. No, no, no. He is also the king of peace, a priest of God. The writer of Hebrews sees this as he reads through the Old Testament and he comes to this passage he starts to wonder like how is this possible he's kind of struggling with the same things that David did how do we put king and priest together how do we where does this man come from he doesn't have genealogy what, what and he's wrestling with the same questions and then and then he, he it clicks and he writes this in Hebrews 7:22 to 27 After I've considered all of these things, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in service. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Forever. Consequently, he is able to save the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. You see, the king of kings, the lord of lords, the Author of creation, the sustainer of the universe, the one who is in all things and through all things, gave himself up so that he could be the sacrifice for us and stand in front of God and plead for our holiness. That he could be both king and advocate. That he could be king and priest over us. And as priest, he goes to God and says, you are a mighty God, but you are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I have paid for this with my own blood. And I am sufficient we stand in the light of that grace. We stand in the, in the glory of that sacrifice once for all that Christ stands right now pleading for God, interceding on our behalf for the sins that we committed this morning as we came here to church. That we will commit moving forward into this week. He paid for it. It's sufficient. He stands before the throne of grace saying, These are my sheep. They are holy. I have paid for them. He is the king of righteousness, and He is the king of peace. See, but, but when we run into a king like this, that, that requires change. That requires something something of me. See, it took Abraham three chapters or a whole lot of life to kind of figure it out, right? Like in Genesis chapter 12, he sees a famine. He's like, God's not going to provide. I don't even know if God's in this. Yeah, I heard something from God, but I'm just not sure. I look around and it's dry. as a desert here. I'm going down to Egypt. And that didn't turn out so well. So he learned something. And in Genesis chapter 13, he stands on a hill with his nephew, Lot. And he says, okay, Lot, which way are you going? I'm going to trust that whatever god gives me he will prosper me so lot chooses what seems better and abraham in faith goes that way and in our passage here in genesis 14 he goes even a step further and he says to the king of sodom who wants to make it about this world and about the things that happen here and how they happen he says no 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 i'm not i'm not taking anything Because I don't want you to think that you had any sway on my success. My success comes from God. Yeah, I I went 240 miles, and that cost me, and I probably lost some men along the way, and it took a ton of time for me to do that. And I came back, and here's all your stuff, because here's what I want you to know. God rules my life. God blesses me. God supplies for me. It was not you. It was God. We also have a God who has supplied everything that we need. This king came for us so that we can stand rightly before God and have an eternity of relationship with him. My life needs to act as a signpost to him. My life needs to look like it just points somewhere else. It's not about me. Abraham got that. He's like, no, 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 uh, king of Sodom, this isn't about me. This is about God who did this. response a response to the gospel that that jesus came from his kingship from his rightful place to die for us and then raise again so that we could have relationship with him should cause each and every one of us who understand that to to have our lives look such a way that all people do is see man god is glorious wow that king is amazing Look how merciful he is, how holy he is, how good he is. It's not about me, Jason. It's about him. It's about Christ. It's about what he did. It's about what he is doing and will do and continues to do. It's about his eternal value, his eternal worth, his holiness. And no amount can satiate that holiness We will spend eternity looking at that because he is so good and so holy and so righteous. Does your life, when people look at it, does it act like a light on a hill that they would see your good works and they would glorify God in heaven? I think when we understand what God has done for us, that is a necessary response that our lives would look like signposts that say he did it he did it all it wasn't me i didn't do it i don't need any accolades they should go to god not because i'm self-deprecating but because he is so good and then from that our our lives should be so defined by the generosity that god poured out on us. See, Abraham got that. He, com- he comes back to a king who was not in the battle, but who represents God as a priest. And he says, here's 10% of everything. And I'm giving everything else back. But God, here's 10% of everything. It cost me greatly to get this stuff back, but you have it. I think when we, when we properly understand what it is that we have received in Christ, our lives look differently. And our hands open and we ask God, not what is for me, but what can I do for you? Out of all the things that you've given me, the talents that you've given me, the capacity, the wisdom, the discernment, the energy, the, the, the financial wealth, the, the influence in my community. What is it, God, that you want me to do with the talents that you have given me? Because when I look at the cross, when I look at what you could have done and what you did do, I know that everything I have is yours. Everything. So, Lord Jesus, use me. Use me. Use me to bring glory to your name and to to show people what it means to follow a God that is so merciful, so gracious. Is that you? Oh, I, I pray it is. Let's pray. Oh Father, um, I'm so grateful that we have Christ, who's standing there, interceding on our behalf. That you've given us a picture of this of this priest king in Genesis, to show a glimpse of Jesus, that even from the very beginning, pointing to a point of redemption for me a sinner, a rebel. Thank you, Father, that, that you sent Christ for us and that he stands interceding on our behalf as our high priest. Oh, God, would we, would we be able to grasp that truth that you on high are interceding on our behalf and if that's the case, who can separate us from the love of God? Oh, Jesus, would that truth just sink down into our hearts as you advocate for us, that you love us, that you saved us. In Jesus' name, amen.